Good morning, you guys. It is such a privilege this morning to, after spending this time worshiping our Jesus, our Savior, that we get to now come and listen to his words and listen to his teaching and sit at his feet. We're actually in the middle of a series of Sunday messages um, on Jesus' teaching to his followers that are found in the book of Matthew. So if you want to open your Bibles up or find on your Bible apps Matthew, we're going to be digging quite deep into scripture this morning. This portion of scripture is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And um, this is kind of the beginning of Jesus' teaching to his followers on what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow him, what are the distinctives of those of us that follow him. And this passage that we'll be looking at this morning is found in Matthew 5, chapter, um, verses 17 to 48. And the, the section that we're going to be looking at is going to be very full of vivid examples and metaphors and sometimes even some jarring statements that may benefit from a closer look from us. As with most passages from the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of these words will actually be familiar to us. So what I would like to do this morning is that as we read together the words of Jesus, I'd like us to talk through some of the context that these words were set in, that the original hearers would have understood that maybe we sometimes miss from our modern day ears. And my hope is that through that lens of the original context and also some of the framing of the passage, that we'll have a deeper and sharper understanding of what Jesus was communicating to all of us and to those original hearers. Using this portion of scripture that sometimes is misunderstood, sometimes is misquoted, and sometimes is misapplied. But before we begin our passage this morning, we need to take a quick look back actually at the context that we're going to find this passage of scripture in so that we have a clear picture of what is going on here. A few weeks ago, Ollie took us through the text at the end of Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus had just begun his ministry in northern Israel near the Sea of Galilee. He had been walking through the region, teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So at this point, Matthew tells us that a massive crowd of people from all over Syria, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan River, and even in all of those surrounding cities of the Sea of Galilee, they're sometimes called the Decapolis, all of these people were following him. And then Matthew also recounts that Jesus had just called the first of his students, the first of his disciples to follow him at the beginning of Matthew. And it says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus has gone up to the side of a mountain, and most scholars believe this would have been the Corazon Plateau, which is kind of a large, flat mountain behind the town of Capernaum, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And according to the text, Jesus sat down. So when we hear this words, these words this morning, I want you to remember that Jesus is seated. So this is actually a kind of a customary position for the teachers of the law during that time. They would sit down and then their students or their disciples would come and sit at their feet so that they could hear their teaching. And the text is very clear that that's actually what's going on here. 
it isn't that larger group, that larger crowd of people who were interested in Jesus because of all of these miracles that he had been performing that are here listening to th this message. It's his disciples. This message that we're about to hear is being directed toward those who have already decided to follow him. And that's an important distinction that we need to keep in mind as we listen to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus begins to teach them here in chapter 5 about the kingdom of heaven and what it means to follow him. A couple of Sundays ago, Paul led us through that very first part of this message of Jesus called the Beatitudes, where Jesus blesses his followers and then teaches us that the blessings in the kingdom of heaven are kind of upside down to what we might think. It was very upside down to what the teachers of the day would have been teaching, and it's very upside down to the things that we value in our modern world as well. And then right after that passage, Nathan led us through the next passage that talks about how do we, as Christ followers, as disciples, relate to the world around us. And Jesus told them, and us, that we should expect persecution, and that in the midst of that, they will be salt and light to the world. So now, the passage that we're going to be looking at together this morning, Jesus is going to clarify for his followers how does he relate to the law that was previously revealed in the Old Testament? And then also, how should his disciples, how should we then relate to the law? So our first and opening kind of text this morning is Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. It's a sort of introduction to the wider passage that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be reading a lot of scripture, so gear up. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a lot packed into these first few statements that Jesus has made, some of which we sometimes miss not listening with the ears of a first century Hebrew. So let's take a closer look at some of what Jesus has just said here. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. So what is Jesus referring to when he says the law and the prophets? Well, this was a phrase that was used in the first century to refer in general to all of the comprehensive way that God's written revelation had been given to the Israelites up until that point. So it included the Torah, but it was far more encompassing than what we sometimes think of as the law in the Old Testament. It was much bigger than just the Ten Commandments or the other religious and community laws that God had outlined for the Israelites in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Really, when we talk about the law or the Torah, it encompasses God's whole story of grace and the Mosaic Covenant that God had with Israel. And the prophets 
isn't talking just about the specific prophecies that had been revealed about who the coming Messiah would be. It's actually referring to all of the book of the prophets that are recounting the way that God's covenant had been applied within the context of the people of Israel throughout ancient times. So when Jesus makes the statement that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets but to fulfill them, he's making a clear statement that his teachings and his life are not contradictory to the Torah. That word translated fulfill here, it carries the meaning of bringing completeness, of being filled to the brim, of something accomplishing its original purpose. One author describes it this way, in great continuity with God's redeeming, saving covenant work, Jesus is bringing to completion all that God has begun to do in ancient times. So Jesus' words here indicate that he endorses and insists on the authority of the law, and then he reveals that he himself is come to bring fulfillment and completion to everything. So if this is how Jesus relates to the law, then how should his followers relate to the law? His next statements are a bit surprising. They perhaps are to us now, but they most certainly would have been to those original listeners. Remember he says, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The idea of Jesus' followers having a righteousness that exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees would have been shocking and probably really discouraging, actually. Remember, the Pharisees were the teachers of the law during that day who were known for their very strict observance of the minutia of the Torah. In fact, they not only followed the Torah laws, they had actually come up with other laws to interpret the laws of the Torah, and still further laws again to interpret those. So they're following a lot of legal documents here on how they think they should be living out righteous lives. So the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus said were supposed to exceed their righteousness, these were the very religious people of the day. They were, according to everyone else, far, far more righteous than your average person. They had positions of authority in the community. Their lives, at least outwardly, were characterized by practices like very legalistic hand washing and strict tithing and public prayer and rigorous study of the law. So hearing that as followers of Jesus, their righteousness needed to exceed that of the Pharisees, that would have been really hard to swallow and hard to even conceptualize. What is this righteousness that Jesus is actually talking about? Well, if you recall, Jesus had referred to righteousness a couple of um, paragraphs earlier there, when he had talked about in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness because you will be filled, right? You will be satisfied. So we sometimes think about this righteousness as right living or right acting. And from a religious or doctrinal perspective, it's sometimes referred to as being in the right condition before God. 
But this word here, when we look at righteousness, actually means more than that. It means wholeness or integrity. Something that encompasses not only the correct way of acting, but also a correct way of thinking and a correct way of feeling. So what does all of this teaching mean then? How can Jesus' followers have a righteousness that exceeds and that's greater and deeper than that of the Pharisees? And what would that even look like in real life? So what follows next actually are examples because as a teacher, Jesus gives examples of what that might look like. So in the next passages, we're going to find six common teachings of the day that were drawn from the original Torah. Jesus is going to take a look at them and then expound on them. And each of them follows a pattern, which I think is really helpful for us to note so that we can understand these passages correctly and not read more into them than what they actually say. So let's pay attention to a pattern that we're going to see here. Jesus is going to give a statement, then he's going to give an explanation, and then he's going to give some examples in each one of these. If you recall, Jesus' original listeners would have been mostly illiterate, and they certainly wouldn't have had the Torah sitting around in their homes for them to read whenever they wanted. So what was going on here is that your average person was dependent on the scribes and the teachers of the day to tell them what the Bible said, to tell them what the Torah said. So as we read each of these examples, you're going to hear a statement with the repeated phrase, you have heard it said, followed by then a common teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And it's really important to remember here that while the sayings that Jesus is quoting come to some extent from the original law, they are actually referring, he's referring here to what the teachers of the day said. So Jesus doesn't say, scripture says, and then quote scripture, he says, you have heard it said. So that's gonna be really important to remember as we read this passage. And secondly, then in each of the examples, Jesus is going to follow up that statement with the authoritative words, but I say to you. He's going to give us his own interpretation of the meaning of the law and the righteousness that's intended to undergird it. At first glance, it can seem like Jesus is now giving us a contradictory statement to the Torah or to the law, but remember, Jesus has just told us that he came to fulfill or complete the law, so that can't be the right way to read that. Perhaps a better way to understand it is that Jesus is explaining the true intent behind the original law that the teachers had been quoting and sometimes misquoting and sometimes adding to. So as we read these examples, watch for the way that Jesus' statements surpass the Torah without actually contradicting it. And then finally, each portion is gonna have a section of examples of what this righteousness that Jesus is calling his followers to looks like if it were to far surpass outward actions and the outward observance of the law that the Pharisees were focused on. So watch for how it places an emphasis on our inward disposition instead of our outward actions. The examples that Jesus is gonna use as he describes this outworking of righteousness in our lives are going to be vivid and sharp. This morning, as we listen to Jesus' words, Let's be careful to not rush to interpret these examples 
as hyperbole or metaphors without allowing the meaning and the intent behind them to sink deeply. All right, let's dive in here. We get to talk about anger. <laughs> All right, Jesus' words. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So firstly, do you see the pattern that we just talked about? We have the original statement, which refers to a specific law from the Torah, actually Exodus 20, 13 and Deuteronomy 5, 17, both say, you shall not murder. But then, in addition to the actual law, the teachers of the day were giving their own interpretation of that and adding, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Seems pretty obvious, right? But then Jesus gives his own interpretation of the law. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, followed then by specific examples of how that might actually be lived out. Jesus is teaching his followers that the devastating and far-reaching consequences of murder have something underneath of them. It's a heart that is bent toward anger, a heart that harbors anger. Jesus isn't saying that murder and anger are equal. He's saying that one of them results from the other. I like how author Jen Wilkin described it. She said, the impulse to murder is nothing less than the outworkings of a lesser impulse that we actually choose to indulge on a regular basis. Our exaggerated responses when we're angry reveal that we didn't simply become angry in that moment or in that instance, but we carry a supply of pent-up anger with us most of the time. And then in these examples Jesus gives, he shows that that anger spills over into insults, derisive comments, contention between brothers and sisters, and to lawsuits. And notice how he highlights the importance of immediacy, urgent action in restoring relationship with our, when our anger has brought disunity. Let's continue. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. In a similar way to the example with anger and murder, Jesus teaches us here that underneath that outward action of adultery is the inward sin of lust. 
And the righteousness that Jesus calls us to as his followers doesn't look like not committing adultery. It looks like not lusting in the first place. That's a heart level issue. It involves looking at people differently, looking through eyes that recognize their dignity and see the image of God rather than something to satisfy us. And Jesus uses then hyperbole to see the kind of commitment to righteousness that his disciples are called to. Not lusting practically worked out in our lives involves going to great extent to stop our eyes and our hands and our feet from wandering into sin. But remember that conquering lust isn't as simple as removing the offending member. Because the truth is that our eyes and our hands and our feet are following the pleasure of our hearts, right? If it were that simple, we would be walking around as maimed individuals, but still with hearts that are lusting. Jesus continues. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, we have that same pattern here, a teaching or a saying that Jesus' followers would have been very familiar with, that was based to some extent on an original law, but that represented the teachers of the law's own interpretations and these legal maneuverings that they had come up with. To clarify, Jesus is not setting out to give this comprehensive teaching on the subject of divorce here. And if we try to do that, if we try to take this passage and teach on divorce using only this passage, we will also misrepresent Jesus' teachings on this. That's why it's so helpful to see that this passage is a part of a wider grouping of examples that's teaching us that outwardly following the letter of the law misses the mark in terms of righteousness. The teachers of the day were touting this interpretation. They not only missed the mark of the original law of preserving the covenant of marriage, but in practical terms, their teaching was actually having devastating consequences on people's lives and in the lives of the community members. Scholars that look back on this time in um, Jewish history, they say that the practical outworkings of this kind of teaching coming from the Pharisees was that actually men were divorcing their wives so that they could legally marry new partners they were just randomly interested in, and then claiming that they were still following the law. Now, it would have been extremely difficult for a first century woman in Israel to survive socially and economically after her husband had divorced her without remarrying. So women were remarrying. Jesus points out that simply giving someone a certificate of divorce doesn't make that person morally righteous in their pursuit of those other partners. And in fact, they were actually contributing to someone else's sin as well. Jesus continues, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, 
or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. So what's the deal about oaths? By show of hands, how many of you solemnly swore an oath this last week? No? Well, a couple of you. Usually for us in 21st century Western world, we're thinking, hmm, finally I can sit a little bit more comfortable in my seat here. <laughs> Maybe this one doesn't apply as much to me, right? Maybe this isn't something I wrestle with as much as some of these other topics that Jesus has brought up. But let's take a closer look at what's actually going on here. So in ancient times where written legal documents were not as prolific as they are today, taking an oath was a formal way to enter into a binding contract. And God had laid out very clear laws on how seriously his people were supposed to take these oaths, even to the extent that if someone in a man's household had made an oath before God, that head of household, that man himself, was responsible legally and financially for the burden of fulfilling that oath. This is how seriously God takes oaths. But as we've seen, the Pharisees had found a way to kind of get around the heart of the law and instead just follow the outward letter of the law. Who remembers when you were a kid on the playground and you were talking to someone and they said something and you weren't sure if they were really telling you the truth. So you're like, do you promise? And they're like, oh yeah, I promise. Only to find out later they had their fingers crossed and they're like, ah, it doesn't count. I had my fingers crossed when I said that. Well, in essence, we have a grown-up version of this. The Pharisees had been teaching that maybe you could get out of certain contracts if you hadn't used the precise formula for swearing an oath before God, and you had maybe used words instead like by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. So Jesus comes in here with these examples, and he gets right to the point. He challenges, I love this, this phrasing by Jen Wilkin, he challenges our affection for bare minimum compliance. Isn't that just how we are? We want to get by with just what we can get by with. And Jesus challenges that for us right here when we talk about oaths. He not only says that his followers should be people of such integrity that their word stands, their word alone stands, but he even goes so far as to say that anything else is from evil. Do we take our words that seriously? I wonder if, after all, maybe this teaching doesn't seriously apply to us in the modern Western world as well. Jesus continues, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him also have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So what's going on here? This saying an eye for an eye 
and a tooth for a tooth. This is actually in legal terms referred to as the lex talionis. And it's a legal term that was found not only in the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, but it's actually found in several ancient cultures as well. For example, the Code of Hammurabi from the Babylonians also had the same kind of law. The original law was meant to restrain people from indiscriminately exacting revenge in cases where someone had accidentally or intentionally physically harmed someone else. So it was intended to put some boundaries in place for the, a kind of appropriate and equal punishment that could be meted out in these cases, oftentimes by the family members of the person that had been harmed or wronged. But Jesus teaches us that deeper whole person righteousness goes far beyond just having a measured response when someone wrongs us. Jesus tells his followers to not even resist. And there's a, an important connection here to the previous passage where Jesus talked about us being salt and light and where he had told us that as his followers we should expect persecution on his behalf. And here he's showing his followers that in the midst of that suffering, our response should not be retaliation in kind. And all of these other examples that you see here in this passage, they would have been real life examples of the kinds of experiences that Jesus' followers would have had in first century Israel under Roman oppression at that time. Once again, Jesus' interpretation of the heart of the law is far beyond what the Pharisees were teaching. Jesus continues, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than other people? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So in this last grouping, Jesus is once again highlighting the inconsistency in interpretation of the law by the teachers of the day and how that completely contrasts with the kind of love that he calls us to. The original law that this is based on in Leviticus 19.18 simply says to love your neighbor as yourself. But apparently, the teachers of the day taught that by extension, that meant that you should then hate your enemy. Jesus flips this right upside down and states rather that we should love and pray for our enemies in a way that reflects our parentage. Do you see that here? In a way that reflects our father. His examples force us to take a step back and remember whose we actually are. He points out that love directed to those that only love us in return, far from being an indication of righteousness, that's just an ordinary common response for people, even widely considered in the day to be despicable, like the tax collectors and the Gentiles. A couple of weeks ago, I was sharing with my discipleship group a way that the Lord had used this passage in particular to challenge me very specifically. I had been struggling with some particularly 
tricky and complicated interactions with some work colleagues, and um, I found myself regularly in prayer for wisdom on how to proceed. It seemed like every text, every email, every phone call required me to stop and consider how I should proceed here. And I genuinely wanted to do the right thing. I have come to see that by God's grace, he gives us wisdom when we ask for it. And more than that, he gives us strength to follow through in obedience when by his wisdom, he shows us what the right thing to do is. He gives us strength to follow through even when our actions cost us. And it was costing me. It was challenging and humbling and sometimes just tiring. But it was the right thing to do. But the thing is, I began to notice that I was coming to the Lord a lot about this. And as I read this passage, the Lord convicted me deeply that even my right actions of turning to the Lord for prayer and wisdom and relying on him to follow through in obedience, even those right actions revealed the depth of my inadequacy, of my unrighteousness. He showed me that in this instance, my continued struggle, the reason I had to keep turning to him, was rooted in a lack of love. I quite simply don't love them with the expansive and deep and sacrificial love that Christ has for them. And you guys, these people aren't even my enemies. They're my friends. But when I meditate on the kind of righteousness that Jesus says characterizes his followers in this passage, I'm confronted with the ways that I fall short. So I've changed my prayer now to ask the Lord to give me his love for these people. And yes, I'm still going to need his wisdom, but I'm just more aware of my lack of righteousness. Finally, to sum up all of these examples that Jesus has been giving for us of what righteousness looks like, he says, verse 48, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. His statement has echoes of God's instructions to the Israelites in Leviticus 20, 26, where God had told them, be holy because I am holy. So in a similar way, where the Israelites were to reflect God's holiness or his set-apartness, we're also called to reflect our Father's perfectness. Now, the word perfect to us in 21st century English is not always a helpful understanding of what Jesus actually said here because sometimes it carries with it an unhelpful connotation. I'll be honest, when I hear the word perfect, it brings to mind the accompanying word perfectionism. <laughs> this striving for an elusive ideal that carries with it the burden of legalism, which actually takes us right back to the Pharisees' perspective of this outward observance of the law. And that is not what Jesus is referring to here. The word that Jesus used here actually carries the meaning of completeness or wholeness. 
In other words, the kind of righteousness that Jesus says characterizes his, follow, his father and his followers is a virtue that is complete and perfectly whole. It's whole in how we think, it's whole in how we feel, and it's whole in how we act. Author John Pennington says, to say that the disciples must be teleos as God is teleos is to say that they must be whole or virtuous, singular in who they are, not one thing on the outside and something different on the inside. This kind of perfect, this kind of deeper whole person righteousness that Jesus says characterizes his followers is so, so different than outward observance of the rules. Guys, mere outward actions of obedience cannot produce in us the kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. Only the internal change that comes from the Spirit of God at work in us as already followers of Jesus can produce that kind of righteousness in us. That's the kind of righteousness that's different from the rest of the world. That's the kind of righteousness that makes us the light of the world. I'd like us to go back and think of Jesus' opening statements in this passage and remember that the aim of this passage is to explain to Jesus' followers how he, and then how we as his disciples, should relate to the law or should practice righteousness. As we reflect on the words of Jesus here this morning, I'd like us to think, how do we come to the law and to Jesus' expanded teaching on it? How do we come to Jesus' teaching on greater, deeper righteousness? And then, how do we respond to that? I think sometimes when the depth of Jesus' teachings highlights an internal inconsistency in us or in our actions, our tendency, our natural tendency, is to want to just justify ourselves in our hearts, right? We minimize our sin by comparing it to someone else's greater sin. Or we sometimes rush to cite the passages that we live under a new covenant and that the law doesn't have power over us anymore. And while both of those things are true, we need to remember that Jesus himself did not pit rules against relationship. He's the one who said, if you love me, you will obey me. And then he promised in that same passage the Holy Spirit to indwell in us to enact that obedience. Other times when we're confronted with this high calling that Jesus has for his disciples in righteousness, we have a tendency to, much like the Pharisees of the day, move toward a legalistic outward compliance of the law we start to become rigid rule followers and our identity gets wrapped up in our ability to perform. We look at this passage and also the wider teachings in scripture and we begin to see a list of things that we must do. And maybe we don't even understand that list as something we must do to be saved. Maybe that's been settled in our heart for us, saved by grace alone. But slowly our hearts convince us that we must do them to be loved, accepted, valued, 
useful in the kingdom of heaven. But neither of these postures, the one of minimizing or the one of moving toward legalism is necessary. In fact, both of those postures are deeply harmful to us, to those around us, and to our witness. So as we reflect this morning on Jesus' teaching and the idea of how do we come to his teaching, how do we respond to it, I want to encourage us this morning that we cannot come to the teaching of Jesus apart from coming to the person of Jesus. He alone is so perfectly whole and integrous that to come to his words actually means to come to him. We cannot come to his teaching without coming to him. We cannot come to him without coming to his teaching. The truth is that we're not used to this kind of integrity, are we? Diane Langberg, an author who actually looks at um, power and abuse within the church, said it this way, we live in a culture of words that are often disembodied. The words are completely separate. But Jesus comes to us as the word of God. He perfectly embodies what he taught. He's our example in this. The person who taught us here to love your enemies and pray for them is the same person who painfully wrapped himself in my sin and took the consequence for, for me while I was his enemy. I don't need to rationalize or minimize my sin when I'm confronted it, with it because I have an advocate in Jesus, in the person of Jesus who stands before the Father and lives to make intercession for me, Hebrews says. And that same Jesus said that the righteousness, who said that the righteousness of his followers needs to be greater, deeper, it needs to exceed that of the Pharisees, He's the same one who is our righteousness. And he's the one who, according to Ephesians 5, 27, he's the one who washes us, washes the church with his word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Perfect. Friends, this greater and deeper righteousness of the teaching and the person of Jesus brings us life, brings us integrity, brings us wholeness, and those things in turn generate peace and joy in our lives. And that spills over into our families, into our communities, and it brings light to the world. Let's allow Jesus to use his word to cleanse us, to renew us, and to draw us near to him this morning.